This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. to interview you and I kind of checked out the book. I was excited about, um, I mean, obviously the intersections of mental health and creative process are kind of what I'm all about. Um, But also just the, like I I have people in my life, there's several people in my life that have um, dealt with like bipolar stuff and being in the mental health system and how that works. And so it seemed exciting to actually kind of get to talk to you one-on-one and hear more about what your journey has been like. Um, I know it's it's different for everyone. So um, because I hadn't heard about you before um, being invited to do this, I wanted to kind of open it up for you to give people a chance. Since the book just came out, I'm guessing that probably a lot of you have not seen it yet to just kind of give us a quick um, tour, a little intro to what is Rx, the graphic memoir that you just published. Yeah. um, uh, Hi, everyone. Um, uh, I'm bipolar and um, Rx is a story that is about um, my hospitalization um, for bipolar mania. in 2011, uh, which was involuntary, and the six months prior to that, that I worked um, in the advertising industry uh, for Pfizer, um, doing antidepressant uh, ads. Um, I'm trying to just take you on a quick tour here of some of the the pages in the book, just so that you know that it is a visual a visual book. But um, I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes. So there is some dark humor in there, but yeah, um, RX is really, uh, a a much broader thing than, than my own story. I think that I really, um, in the aftermath of that experience, um, I, I felt that I really needed to share what I had learned, um, you know, as, uh, someone who had seen behind the curtain, um, of that industry and also was, you know, um, dealing with mental, mental illness myself. Um, and so it has a lot to do with, uh, the burden of having, uh, carrying a a mental illness diagnosis in America. Um, and just what it's like as a young person to, uh, deal with that, um, while also kind of navigating your own, um, identity and, um, you know, progressively getting, getting more into your autonomy um, you were talking too about how you had before the diagnosis, you your identity, your primary identity was as an artist, and there was this sense of like transferring your identity from being I'm an artist to like I'm a mental health patient. So I wonder if you want to speak to that a little bit. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've always um, been a creative person and um, I have always drawn pictures and I, I've always drawn comics. Actually, there's some people in the audience that I went to high school with and they can attest to the fact that I did have um, a, a comic in um, The Voice. Uh, but yeah, when I went to college, I, I had the intention of continuing making comics and continuing to be an artist. But, um, when I was diagnosed, when I was 19, um, I really felt like I had to completely reprioritize my life around the fact that I needed to be medicated in order to have uh, a stable life and existence. And for me, it was, uh, I had just completely ruined my life and gone through these traumatic experiences. And the last thing that I wanted to do was to jeopardize that. And um, so I, it became more important for me to be sane than it was to be an artist and be making art. And, you know, of course, when you graduate from college, you at that point, there was no Obamacare and I needed to get a job that would give me health insurance so that I could continue to care for myself. And so um, one of the things that as someone who, uh, I mean, I'm an artist, but I don't make comics. And so when I look at comics, one of the things I'm really struck by is the, like the rawness and well, there's rawness and sort of vulnerability in your work when you're doing kind of autobiographical work, but the, form of comics just seems really deceptively simple, right? Like there's um, some images that we're looking at that we're not talking about for uh, the sake of our podcast listeners, but they're you know, like your style is pretty, it's kind of like dancing. It's like ballet, right? If you do it really well, it looks effortless and it looks like, oh, like I could just kind of scroll this thing and have it be effortless and um, one of the things I like visually about this book is there's the combination of sort of going in. Um, there's some pages where there's a lot going on and it's sort of reflecting your mental state when you're more manic. There's like kind of hands that are all scribbled coming in from different directions. But I like how they're contrasted with a page where um, there's a, a few pages that I love that are just a close up of the wall sort of like the texture of the wall and so there's that the, like a sense of kind of visual pause like mm -hmm. the really busy good that's what i wanted Yay. <laughs> Success. um but in terms of the 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 form um we talked a little bit about using right like i come from an expressive arts therapy background and so um i'm always trying to get in trying to encourage people to use their creativity in the service of healing or just even exploring or expressing. And um, we talked a little bit about how you use your art form as I think you described it as like your own personal art therapy practice. Mm -hmm. And so I guess um, I want to hear a little bit more about one, like how you do it, but two, how you actually get yourself. I know that for me and most people, even though you know, like you have said, that it's really grounding and you know that if you spend an hour drawing, it feels good, it kind of calms you, but yet it's still hard to get to it. So I, I wonder, like, how do you get yourself to do it? 
Okay, well, many, many things that I would like to address from that. Um, I, I, I would say that comics just should be treated generally as, as a, a means of storytelling, and it really is just an, a narrative practice. And I think that when this experience happened, I felt as a storyteller, you kind of privilege different experiences with different levels of imperative to share them. And nothing had ever happened to me in my life that felt more important to share than this experience. And I don't think that I ever would have written an autobio piece. I know that I would not have written an autobio piece on this, at this scale had it not been for the confluence of circumstances that this brought together. The insane irony, uh, the, the, all of the, the, it was just a lot and I knew it. And I made a promise to myself in the hospital at the moment that they committed me that I was going to tell this story. And now, you know, here I am. Um, but when I sat down to do this, I mean, I can't even believe that some of this like happened like there, you know, I just knew that this was juicy, you know, and I knew, I knew that I could get someone to pay me to do this. And like, it's the craziest luxury as a cartoonist to be like, you know what, I've done enough and I'm just going to wait till I get a book deal to do any more work, which is exactly what I did because I had reached a point where like, I, I, I had been working on it since 2011. I started it in the hospital. And um, what, what it was f- over the course of the seven years in between has changed so dramatically and has changed in a lot of ways based on my own ability to process that experience. And I'm so glad that I had the time to do that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was, when I actually sat down to do it, I realized that there was a lot more that I had to deal with that was not part of that elevator pitch. And, um, when I was, you know, went down to fill in the gaps in this, you know, you know, my, my like little story arc of this experience, it was incredibly difficult. And, what I, I, there were just days that I did not know if I would ever be able to finish it. And I was having to deal with the most extreme points of emotional agony and anguish and anger that I had ever experienced. And, you know, having worked in this art form for so long, it was so shocking to me how difficult it was for me to just put it down. And I, you know, some days I would write and some days I I would draw. But what I found ended up getting me the most traction was focusing on the structure of the comic itself, because you're not only writing and drawing, you're, you're writing with the panels and the way you compose the panels. And there's different ways to privilege information within that that, that grid that you have. Um, and that I found myself going through this exercise of when I would write, I wouldn't just write sentences. I would be writing and then moving those thoughts across the page in this way that enabled me to kind of create, create this visualized version of that. And it was like making a container for my trauma and, um, I knew how to manipulate it. And another thing about comics is that, you know, there's a a very uh, filmic sensibility to, you know, composing them. And like Ivy was saying, 
I wanted to be in control of the pacing more than anything else because, you know, especially in the manic mindset is just so urgent and relentless. And to be able to force the reader against their will to engage with these memories was the greatest power that I could have because I just wanted people to feel what it was like. I didn't want to tell anyone. I just wanted people to feel and experience that with me because it just felt like it was com- a complete, you know, wave of uh, that I was completely out of control of. So, um, yeah, that was that was a really amazing thing to be able to flex. And I definitely knew when it was working and when it wasn't. And that's that's what I I spent a lot of time trying to to do that. And and I'm so satisfied to hear that the majority of people who have read this book have read it in one sitting. And that's exactly what I want. And um, I'm psyched. (laughs) (laughs) And I I did read it in one sitting, but then I noticed going back into it. I definitely recommend that you read it a second time once you've like gotten a chance to I kind of like read it once through and looked at it but as I went through the second time I got a lot more out of it like kind of some of the nuances I mentioned already Um, but I was interested in what you said about creating a container for your trauma in in expressive arts therapy we talk about like the continuum of of art forms like um, from containing to expressive right so an example is kind of watercolor is super expressive right and it's flowy and it's all over the place and like a really tight little um like micron pen is the opposite of that Mm -hmm. right so yeah um when you were talking about uh the sort of the the structure of the panels containing your trauma you also talked a little bit about engaging in this process and it took like 1800 hours yeah so each page each page in this book it's 256 pages each page in this book took five to ten hours soup to nuts and so you said though in that process it was also re some of it was re-traumatizing like going through that again so i'm curious to hear about sort of that it's like this whole arc from re-traumatizing to like now you've created a <laughs> container yeah, well, for that trauma. It did, that, that little element of it has only occurred to me after the container aspect of it. And I think I've done a lot of reflecting on the the process of this in in hindsight after even after it's been completed. But um, the re-traumatizing was very real, and I'm very glad that I was seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist at that time. Um, because it was really hard and I, I really needed to, and I have a great support system with my friends and I really needed to share different parts of it with them because I just couldn't deal with it because a lot, I, I mean, what, after drawing autobio comics for 20 plus years, uh, my drawn self is like a tr- truer self than my physical body. So to, it's like looking in the mirror, you know, and here I am, you know, one of the most difficult parts of the book was when I, uh, I am tackled to the ground by my father in Times Square and drawing that scene. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, the process was that I would draw the pencil drawing and then I'd put it on a light box and I would, you know, do the, the ink it on top. It's all done by hand. Um, and, 
uh, th those pencil pages are cut up and erased all over as opposed to ones from other sections of the book that are just one piece of paper that I was able to render all these things. But it's so clear that that was so hard for me to revisit because of the, the tactile, the, the, the object of that. And I, I was, I was in a show and I was reviewing some of the, you know, process drawings and I just, it just blew my mind to like realize that, yeah, the reason that this is in shreds is because I had to stand up from my desk and walk around the house every five minutes when I was drawing this, because that's how visceral that, that act was for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it really was, uh, uh, this doing the book, despite the fact that I had told it and I had written about it many, many times, it really was like telling this story for the first time and in, in the most honest way. And it was not easy. Can you talk a little bit more about the process of making the book so it took you it was two and a half years I mean I I feel like I never quite locked into something that was comfortable um I always just sort of was trying trying to figure it out but a lot of what I needed to do was be outside and be in nature and um I used to jokingly refer to my like tiny tiny backyard as the office because that's where I would kind of station myself um, but yeah, I just tried to, I, I usually, I'm a morning person, so I would wake up and have a cup of coffee and an apple, and then I would work from about nine till noon, and then I would stop for an hour or two, and then I would get high, and then I would start working again. So, uh, that's kind of, you know... <laughs> how how it how it worked sort of and then when it was really like crunch time then i i really needed to i i would plan how many pages i would do a day because i was late and um i just needed to get it done and i i had i definitely had moments where i didn't think i was going to finish on time but um was there a do you feel like there's a difference in the quality of the work from the morning coffee not high to the <laughs> afternoon high art making yeah i definitely there were certain things i couldn't do when i was stoned um but you know like, i would like i would what? be smart about it i can't i, I can't <laughs> focus eyeballs which is hilarious <laughs> i i'm not even kidding i am not kidding it's like if i'm trying to draw a character that's like looking out at me their eyes do not look at me like i'm just like darn it you know every single time and it's just it's just without fail if I'm stoned I cannot draw focused eyeballs so <laughs> didn't do that when I was high. <laughs> good good to know about yourself. <laughs> I've learned so much. <laughs> and I'm also curious about sort of your self care during the process. I mean I'm always really interested in what people do for self care. I know you were talking about um, nature being really focusing for you and also the running archery, which I had never heard of, which mm -hmm. sounds completely amazing. But yeah, you, that was incredible. The, the two things that I, um, I guess I'm curious as an artist, like how people trick themselves into focusing and disciplining themselves. And so the two things I heard you talk about were both the structure of the comic making, kind of like the panels and the, like that, the work of it, if you will, and also the running 
archery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think structure is something that's really important for me as a as a person, and it's been hard actually just just generally for me, like I was 100% full-time comics once I got my book deal in 2016. And it was difficult for me to, you know, manage my time. Um, and I definitely was kind of off the rails for a little bit, but, um, so, so it's funny that structure. Can you say what you mean by that? Oh, I mean, you know, I just didn't have a job. So I just drank and smoked pot all day. I, I mean, so, uh, and then once that, you know, <laughs> I, that didn't, the I couldn't get away an with that forever. Yeah, I know. I know. But, you know, and Burlington's very, I'm from Burlington, Vermont, so it's very relaxed there. Um, but, but I needed other people in my life to be able to help me structure my time. And I really, really relied on my friends to get me out of the house and kind of like take me out of town. And just, I just always needed to get perspective and I need to like shake things up, like just generally, like I need, I tried to access beginner's mind as much as possible. Like that's something that I, I really, really benefit from creatively and the running, I, I also really like, uh, working out and, um, I did, I happened upon this class, um, it's called running with Artemis and, uh, it's out of the, there's a comic about it too. There is a comic about it. Yes. Amazing program. Um, but it's run by, um, uh, someone who does like kind of body work, somatic therapy, and then a wilderness like survival person and archer and um they and so because vermont because vermont and it's a uh, it's all it's all female identifying um uh participants and so what you do is you meet in the the wilds of vermont and um you have a bow and arrow and targets are set up all along the the road and you howl and you start running and you run along this course and you know shoot arrows but it was really amazing for me because i i started that course when i was doing that section about my dad and i and i and it's you know it was amazing that it went through my my medicaid because it it was a you know a wilderness therapy course so i could take this for free i just had to pay for the equipment cost and um you know so in in keeping with it being a therapy thing we would have a check in and this was all really, this kind of therapy was really new to me. I'd never done group therapy before. And so in the beginning, we'd have a walking check-in where, you know, it was like seven people and we would all just kind of like hold space for each other. And you didn't respond to anything anyone said. You just kind of spoke about where you were at and uh, everyone would listen. And, um, you know, I've had a lot to say and it was very emotional for me. And, um, you know, it was really wonderful to be able to kind of, uh, feel safe and be able to be active and be outside and be with people that, you know, were open and, and, you know, it was, it's just been, I I did it every season and, um, it's been, it's really amazing and I, I love doing it. And, um, when the book came out, one of my instructors called me and like sang me a song and it was was so wonderful, but yeah. And it's badass. Also. Yeah. It's a great image, like you just kind of out there with the bow and yeah, arrow. And it's amazing. Archery is a very like Zen thing, and there's a there's a book Zen and the uh, the art of archery, I think, um, 
And it's, you know, you're, and if you think about running archery, it's like, you know, you're cycling through your thoughts and then you have to stop and focus and breathe and shoot. And then you're running again and you have to stop and focus and breathe and shoot. And there's just something about that exchange that it, that really like gets you into this cycle of like, okay, I'm moving and now I can stop and, you know, it was something that was helpful for me to learn just to integrate into my day. And you also talked about, since we're on the subject of nature, um, there's the wolf uh, archetype in your book. And you were talking about also how important animals and kind of mm. like the, the archetypes of different animals are to yeah. you. I wonder, can you tell me a little bit more about the wolf one in particular and like yeah. how I mean, you identify with the wolf? I think, well, I also want, I have two animals I want to talk about. Well, one's an insect, actually. Um, so... So yeah, I, I've, I've realized that in times that I like really am struggling and need to get perspective, just sitting in the natural world and observing like the creatures, even on the most minute level has been like so amazing to just kind of conceive of their reality. And, um, I know that sounds very stonery, <laughs> but you know, it's, <laughs> It's true. It's a, I mean, it's a have safe you ever space. watched in San Francisco? What? <laughs> it's a safe space. We're in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I, I passed uh, quite a few pot facilities on the way here. Um, well, it's legal in Vermont now as of a couple months ago. It is, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> um, no, okay, so, but back to what I was saying. So there was a point where I was really struggling with this, and artists take heed because this was a profound realization for me. Um, I, so, so I got the book deal with a, a bunch of work that I had done, like, years ago, and it was funny, and it was very, very different from what this book is. And um, I realized that the reason that it was the way it was is that I was unable to really engage with certain aspects of this experience. And I needed to like write in a certain way to like distance myself from it. And can you say more about like when you say a certain way, what does that mean? um, I I mean, I think that I write in different styles and I kind of have like a sarcastic sort of like slapstick uh, way of writing as well. And like the voice of this that's active in this book is much more sober and, you know, has a different um, tone. And, you know, I had observed mental illness narratives to be really like, I am a pariah and you know, I had this experience or like, I was crazy. Isn't that hilarious? And I wouldn't say that it was that one, the the crazy, I'm a hilarious thing, but you know, it was, it was about, I didn't like the, the, it didn't work after it was, that was the part about the hospital. And I, I went back and I wrote all this stuff about my job. And then I get to the hospital and I'm like, oh my God, this is in a totally different tone. Like, this is not going to work. I can't just segue into this narrative voice that is non-existent until now. And it also doesn't serve what this is. So this is, you know, six months before the book is due. And I am like, I cannot, uh, how am I going to do this? Wait, no, that's, it was a year, a year before it was due, but six months before it was tight. It was tight. And so I decided, um, 
I, I just didn't know what to do because it was, it was what had got me the book deal. And I was just so worried that if I threw it away, then, you know, I would just be jeopardizing any chance of this being a success. But I knew that it was not right. And so at that point, I started observing a lot of spiders everywhere. And I mean, you know, most people just be like, oh, this one's spider's eggs hatched, duh. But uh, I, start, I was seeing spiders all over. Like anytime that I looked anywhere, there was a spider. And they were really aggressively presenting themselves to me. Like I would get in my car and then, you know, have the window open in like gridlock traffic on the, the most busy street in town. And a gigantic spider climbs in through the window and goes down into the wheel well. You know, like pull the e-brake because I am going to freak out if that climbs on me. Um, and then like I went to get on my bike and um, there, this huge spider like comes out of the it had like eyeballs that were like reflecting blue and like just intense. Like I'd be at my drawing table, spider, spider, spiders everywhere. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to look this up. So I looked up spiders and it said. Spiders are a symbol of patience and creativity because they wait and decide where they're going to make their web to catch the most flies. And they build their beautiful web. And when it yields all it's going to yield, they have to let their beautiful creation go and go somewhere else and, and make a web to catch more flies. And I was just like, Like a That's sand it. painting. Hmm? Yeah. Kind of like a sand yeah. painting. From what you mentioned, yeah, it's, it's similar. Yeah, like, and just being able to, I felt like I then had license to throw this away. And I'm glad that I did. But it's, you know, I, I used to be so afraid of spiders. And now I, I love them because they just, they helped me come to that important realization. Um, and the, the wolf thing, um, I don't know how many of you have read the book, but it's um, it's something that I use... Um, to um, kind of highlight the otherness that I felt. And um, I, I, the, the there's a, I'm just going to narrate for the people sure. who can't see that there's an image of kind of wolf in sheep's clothing going into, yeah, that's the, going the into Pfizer a corporate job. Yeah. So this is a chapter, one of the chapter headers. And um, so, yeah, it's the wolf's in sheep clothing idea. But it's also the idea of this, you know, that even though I wasn't being directly, you know, no one was discriminating against me directly. Nobody knew that I had this, um, you know, mental illness, but I had stigmatized myself and I hated myself so much for having this that like I... I had just taken on this idea that I was this volatile creature and that, you know, I also had these instinctual reactions to my environment um, that I at any time I could just, you know, um, I don't know, become it was just an, in an intense feeling of otherness. Um, and it says um, on the frame, it says passing. Mm -hmm. So there's like a couple other sheep. And then there's um, Rachel as the wolf in sheep's clothing and then passing and they're walking into the Pfizer headquarters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was it was really I really did feel like this strange empowerment in a sense, uh, because I felt like, oh, yeah, like nobody knows, like I'm actually crazy and here I am, you know, you're like undercover. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, now I get it. Like, this is interesting. But it also was really disturbing and, um, you know, I just it, that sort of feeling of passing for sane, you know, 
didn't change the fact that I was ill, you know? And also that sense that you needed to be there, like that it was thrown in your face, this thing that you're not sane, but that you had to have the job because you needed the health insurance. So you're sort of caught in this system, in this cycle of, you know, I don't know if you felt like the job was making you any less sane. Yeah. Um, I mean. But that cycle of like, is that really the best environment for you, but you need it? kind of chicken egg thing um yeah I mean it was it was a very strange circumstance and this is kind of the setup of the book um is that I um as I mentioned before my interest was in being sane so that I wouldn't ruin my life which had happened previously and I was so afraid of myself and I just wanted to do whatever I needed to do to have that not happen again and what that was how that was presented to me was to take psychopharmaceutical drugs uh and i psychiatric drugs um so in order to you know have that i had to have a particular kind of job so that i could have health insurance and that was just the way it was um and so it just was this crazy irony that I, you know, I, I didn't seek out a job working to, you know, make advertisements for antidepressants. I was hired onto the Campbell's account at the a- agency and I worked for Pace and Prego. And then I got this promotion. And, you know, at that point I was just in it for the money. I mean, you know, I didn't really see any other options for my life. So I wanted to make a buck. And, um, you know, but I felt very like I felt strange about it. I felt conflicted. And I remember being afraid that people would find out and like that would be a problem, you know. And that probably added to your I mean, that sounds stressful to me. It was very stressful. Yeah. I mean, I remember asking people like, do you think that this is a conflict of interest? Because I felt like it was like illegal or something that I could know what was going on. But at the same time, you also were in this um, kind of privileged place where you could, you were kind of like a focus group, a secret Mm -hmm. focus group, all your own. Yeah. And right. Yeah. And which was very weird. And I, I should um, be clear because sometimes it's, it can be confusing because I am an artist. I was not be, I was not a creative. I was an account manager. So that was the, the person who, um, uh, you know, oversees the entire process, which is almost more intense because I'm having to field everything from the client and then bring it to the creatives. And I remember being in in my first briefing and like I just felt nauseous constantly, like just to, you know, give you a portrait of this. And uh, so <laughs> they they we you have to make a brief you know to get the to, so that people know how to make the ads and i remember being in the creative briefing and you know they they've distilled all of these points of uh my the trauma into into these little bullet points you know and completely diminishing it and this was antidepressants so it wasn't bipolar but you know i have had profound depressions and so and you said in the book too like you had taken you had tried had taken, all of yeah. the meds oh gosh that... yeah there's that whole thing yeah so i mean <laughs> so i wonder though with the insight that you had of what what 
uh, all of the those meds were like and whatever side effects you might have had, like, did you feel like you had, I mean, you were going to these focus groups of depressed people to see how they responded to ads or did you feel like, well, no, you're getting it wrong? I, I did not. I mean, I don't know if advertising has changed at all, but it is a cutthroat game and you do not speak out of turn. And uh, I, as I said, like I was just focused on making as much money as possible and being promoted. And that was my career. So I wasn't about to like be uh, on a soapbox, like trying to change the everything, you know, because like it was just not possible. It was it was obvious what the machinery was. And, um, you know, I didn't feel like I didn't feel that there was any way that I could affect that in a meaningful way. And I just wanted to be able to live through that to, you know, well enough to take care of myself. And, you know, um, but it was the, what you were saying, um, just to finish my thought about that creative briefing, like this was one of the turning point moments where like, you know, in the beginning it was kind of fascinating because, you know, they're telling me what background they need to have in order to make a psychopharmaceutical ad. It's like you, you need to have substantiation with you basically at all times, just in case they, it, it comes up in a meeting. So like anytime that I went to Pfizer, I would have a folder that was full of like, um, you know, the definition of MDD, which is uh, major depressive disorder, which is what the Pristique, the, the drug that I helped advertise treated. So I would have what that, the indication of that. Um, and then, you know, what the, the side effects, I would have a sheet with the side effects. And then, um, you also had to make sure that you didn't overstate the efficacy of the drug in the ad. So I remember one concept where, you know, it had this woman looking in a mirror as I talk about in the book, but she was wearing a red dress and we couldn't have the red dress because it was like too sexualized or something. And so like all of these bizarre considerations that like, you know, whatever, they are just were so strange to me. But, you know, so that was kind of interesting to see like all of the thought or whatever was that was going into it. Um, but then when I would go to creative briefings, like the the one I was mentioning, and I remember this was like the first one for the rejiggering of the campaign because it had been acquired from another agency. And the creative director reads the briefing and then he goes, well, I already know the best happy pill on the market, ecstasy. And after that, I was like, okay. And uh, then one of my jobs that was like probably the hardest thing for me to do um, that really changed the way that I interacted with the whole situation was that I had to do reports about competitors' uh, ads. And they gave me a list of the competitors, and I had taken every single drug on the list. And so I was going through and analyzing the visualization of my suffering, like in this commercial context, for my client, typing it up, you know, and one of the ads, you know, was a uh, Abilify ad that had this creeping hole of depression. And, you know, it's it's a cartoon, you know. And uh, so I'm just like writing this analysis of it. And I have a copy of it on my computer. And it's like so, again, just so dry 
And um, I just, while I was writing it, I remember just thinking of all the horrible side effects that I had. Like my hair was falling out. I had to pee every five seconds. Like I just like could not, I was so anxious I couldn't sit down. And, uh, you know, it just was like, just like water torture of the all for this uh, the entire time of working on this and there's a this pill imagery in the book where it's like raining pills and that just kind of starts to get more intense throughout the book and that's kind of what it was like what is it like to i mean part of working autobiographically in this form is that you like it's really vulnerable you're talking about stuff that our culture still has a lot of stigma and shame attached to, like what you were saying about when you were actually working on the account for um, Pfizer is this sense of shame that you had that you couldn't actually tell anyone that you had this mental illness. And so we're, you know, in front of this audience and you're doing all kinds of other interviews and like talking about, I mean, it's real. You're talking about being involuntarily hospitalized and your mental health, like people who you hang out with in Bur- in Burlington, like all know that you have this diagnosis and went through this experience if they look at your work. And I guess I'm, I mean, that feels really brave and awesome in a lot of ways. And I just, I'm curious how that fits in, like, how do you make sense of that? And like, does it feel brave to you? It just feels necessary Uh, I really feel like when this happened to me again, I'm a storyteller and I, I didn't know if anything would come of this book in terms of me having to be a, a representative of it. And I feel very confident about what the book says and what the book is because I, I worked so hard on that to make it strike the right note. But I've had, you know, in the, the months leading up to the book coming out, I was extremely nervous and did not feel capable of communicating about myself in the context of my illness, um, you know, as a person because I had not been able to do that effectively outside of this project. Um, but it's, it is great to have the book as kind of the, the intermediary and the being able to talk about the visuals of it is very helpful for me because that, that is the missing piece of my ability to communicate about it. And because that's how you identify, like, as an artist, yeah. through images as yeah, well as, as, a as a storyteller. Right. And, and you know, I just couldn't – I just can't – I can't do it as well. Um, but, you know, I, I actually – for my comic strip this week in Vermont, um, it came out today, and I'm glad that I'm not in town because it's kind of emo. Um, <laughs> Will you tell us about it? Yeah. Well, I – so I um, I've, I introduced the – like my my comic strip Rachel lives here now is completely lighthearted and it is not autobio really like it has like my character of myself but it's about like Vermont themes and it's just like you know it's just a fun strip and I really made a a conscious effort to even when I was having a very hard time doing the book not letting that 
enter the world of this thing because I had an audience and they had an expectation and I you know there's plenty of like sad comics if people want to read sad comics I just wanted to do a straight up comic but when the book came out like realizing that my audience was going to be interacting with this book I felt like I kind of needed to bring them into the picture of my real life and so I introduced that wolf character in this this strip that we had talked about where i i was um interviewed by new york magazine and um it was like an amazing thing but but like i was just saying i was so mortified at the idea of speaking about this without the book to be able to kind of mediate that exchange and um you know i asked my mentor and i asked my friends you know, what do I do? And they said, just be yourself. And I was like, who am I? And so Mm -hmm. in, in the, which I think a lot of people feel. And, um, in the strip, it's, I say, who am I? And it has like a drawing of my manic self. It has a drawing of my very sweet kind of, you know, happy self. And, um, then it has an actual photo of me. And, um, then what happens is I run into the woods classic and um i jump into the water and saying who am i and when i emerge i'm the wolf and so for like there's a sequence of a couple strips where it's kind of like teasing out this identity and um the last one was the week that the book came out and um it it showed me waking up as the wolf and it says release day and it's just like i'm getting all these emails whatever whatever and then i take my pills And then I turn into a human, except my wolf tail, and then I shove it into my underwear. And so, like, just because that's still there. And so this week, I I have it, uh, it's a play on when you, you know, what are you going to San Francisco? You know that song? Okay, so it's it's one of my characters, like, playing this on acoustic guitar. And then it goes into this, like, fantasy. And it goes, if you're... When you go to San Francisco, will you have a panic attack on the plane? Because <laughs> when you get to San Francisco, you're doing, pa- you're doing presentations about how you're clinically insane. <laughs> and then, um, you know, it just goes on. And uh, the, the end of it is like when you, uh, when you finish your presentations, you will wonder, can, will my life ever change? Because you can control the world in your comics, but your insanity will always be the same. And uh, which I felt was very emo. (laughs) Did you have a panic attack on the plane? No, I didn't. Oh, well, actually, I got a little bit mad, but it wasn't related to being out here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Anyway, sorry. That was like a very big detour answer. I liked that we got a, a musical interlude out of it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another part of my creative. Because expressive stuff. arts therapy. Right. <laughs> so so bringing it back around, um, you talked about having really great relationships with both your therapist and your psychiatrist mm-hmm. um, in Vermont. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit more about, like, what's been helpful. You said that parts work was something that really made sense in terms of both the visual artwork, visual storytelling artwork and also just for you and making sense of your makeup 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Parse work has been really helpful. That's new for me. And maybe explain what that is because probably everyone doesn't know what that means. Yeah. I mean, I hope you please correct me if I'm wrong about it also because I have my, I mean, I think I understand. Um, well, you understand what it's been like for you. So you okay, can just good. speak about that. Yeah. I mean, okay. So previously, I, I've never had like an amazing experience with therapy. Um, I've had tons of different therapists and I kind of like, you know, this cycle here, it just kind of felt like a required activity. Like some people really love therapy and it's like this luxurious thing. Like I had to go to therapy. I had to be in therapy so that someone could keep tabs on me and like call up my therapist if there's something or call up my psychiatrist if there's something wrong with me. And, you know, likewise, going to see my psychiatrist was just like me trying very hard not to indicate anything other than factual information. You know, there was no emotional exchange whatsoever. So I never felt like either of those environments were therapeutic at all. And you actually mentioned that right at the beginning point of the book, when you went to the psychiatrist right before you got involuntarily hospitalized, that that person just missed you and was improperly medicating you and yeah. contributed to your having the episode that got you wound yeah. up in the hospital. And I, I mean, I think that bipolar disorder is a very challenging illness to treat because I, I'm a very high functioning manic person and like, you know, I'm very independent generally. So I was able to like, you know, and this is another problem for me personally, when I'm dealing with being manic and whatnot, is that there's often a lot of circumstantial stuff that's happening that's like putting you into a place of being manic and um, where to, you know, separate out like, okay, this does make sense for me to be this upset because, you know, like all this stuff is happening and I'm actually manic is a really hard thing for me to tell. And I guess it's a hard thing for doctors to tell too, because it's true. One of the things that made me so, that was so unbelievable about this hospitalization is that I was seeing a psychiatrist. I was taking my pills. I saw a psychiatrist three days before I was involuntarily hospitalized and he didn't do anything. And to have felt like I was following the rules and just having them completely thrown in my face was just absurd. So I've in Vermont has just been such a beautiful change for me because I feel like I can trust and confide in my my psychiatrist um, in particular. I've been seeing him ever since I moved there, but I, I now have this therapist who does parts work. And it's been very cool for me because it's like, you know, you recognize d different mood states almost like I feel like I very you know, I, I have extremes of my personality and I can kind of frame them in different ways as like different selves that are within me and then like be more conscious of when they are active in a way that like helps me to kind of distance myself and, and just like, I don't know, it, it's helpful. And since I'm a cartoonist, it's, it's interesting because I feel like all my characters are like a part of me. And it, it seems like it goes really well with the structure of making comics, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, you can, it's given you this chance to construct this narrative that it's not a linear, it's not as linear. Like with the comics, you can do things like there are all these great pages where um, you've got the clipboard with your notes, mm. like your therapy notes from the hospital, but they're 
you know, their, their drawings. Mm -hmm. And then I guess what you're saying about parts work is like, you can construct this narrative that's, um, that's in parts, like kind of literally in the same way. I don't know. It just sounds like the same way as comics can kind of pull things together and say a bunch of things all at the same time, kind Mm -hmm. of thrown to get like juxtaposed without it having to go from A to B to C to D. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I think it's, it's less, the parts work stuff is less of a narrative function than the actual, you know, comic making. Um, but it does, it does help me to kind of feel less overwhelmed by by acknowledging that this is just one aspect of who I am and that even though I feel awful or you know what have you that like that is that is one part of myself and I know that that's only one part um but you know I'm still I'm still learning I'm still new to that so that sort of brings me in a tangential way to talking about kind of um back to the your process and your life now as being an art, a professional artist and sort of that fact that the hustle is real. Um, when we spoke the other day, it was, and I know this as an artist, I'm sure a lot of people who work for themselves also know the thing where, you know, it was hours into the day and you'd been wanting to draw and, but at the same time you were kind of like, having to hustle and figure out what the next thing is. And so um, the choice, I know that moving to Vermont, you made a choice that was like, I am not going to do this awful corporate reality just so that I can stay sane. Um, And so I guess I'm wondering like, if you have any advice for artists out there or people who are struggling with their mental health about like how do you um how do you how do you do it like being an artist is actually hard like the the self-discipline um like you were saying before you got the book deal the that you're kind of just like off the rails Mm -hmm. um yeah I mean well what happened for me um was there was another book about bipolar disorder that was a a graphic novel that was published and I that just like lit a fire under me because I was like no 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 like I (laughs) me too um and so (laughs) so at that point I recognized again as I did in the scenario of the book that I needed to get out of New York and I couldn't do this anymore and but I knew the reaction that had happened before, which was, you're going to the hospital now, thank you very much. And so what I did was I told my parents, like, as soon as I decided, and I said, I'm doing it in this many months, you know, and I like planned it out. But it was essentially the exact same thing. Um, Wait, when you say you planned it out, you mean the the moving? Yeah. And I just saved up some money and I knew that's what needed to happen. I did not know what what I was going to do for health insurance. I just saved up, you know, as much money as was possible. And, um, you know, something had happened at work that I knew would kind of prevent me from being promoted. And so it was just like a good time to make my exit and I felt like the the weight of needing to tell this story, like really pressing on me at this point. 
And so I left. And when I went to Vermont, I had a really intense feeling like of imposter syndrome about being a cartoonist because I hadn't done it for five years at that point. And Vermont has one of the only cartoon MFA programs in the country at the Center for Cartoon Studies. So there was already this very well-established, amazing community, but I wasn't a part of that and I wasn't even close to it, like geographically speaking. Wellington's not even close to White River Junction. But um, what I did was I worked as a cashier at this uh, grocery store at this co-op city market. And um, I would just, you know, talk to the people there. And, um, you know, they would ask me like what I did. And I would say, I'm a cartoonist. And it felt like a lie at the beginning. But I just kept saying it to like every single person. And that's the way that my community saw me. And that's the way that my community got to know me. And then I started doing this webcomic that is now in the paper. And it was just like, you know, making that choice for yourself of who you are and who you're going to be just ended up manifesting this entire thing that is here right now. I mean, I just put it out there and I, I live in a beautiful, supportive place. And um, yeah, I mean, I think my advice is just to like try to really see that vision for yourself. Like it's not an easy thing, but like that's that's just kind of what you have to keep in mind is like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, well, how how would you like to um, be if you didn't have to hustle and you could actually pay attention to just making your work? Like, what what would be ideal? Do you want to get another like book contract or what's? Mm, I I would just like to make work in my community and live like a small life. I mean, I I want to go wherever this book is going to take me, but let my my goal is to have a house and some land and um, just be able to, like, enjoy life in that way and just, you know, be responding, taking my art practice from a place of, like, this urgent, you know, event-based kind of art making to, like, a ritual. And, you know, now that this is over... Like I've been thinking about my relation, what my relationship to my art is in general, because this is why I started doing it again, really. And now it's done. So, so yeah, I'm I'm gunning for the the, the natural world, I guess. <laughs> nice. So, since you mentioned ritual, I have one last question. Um, just since kind of like daily ritual, super interesting to me, and I think to you too. So, you mentioned that the tarot was an important part of your. Mm, daily life yeah did you draw a card this morning I didn't well you know what I didn't bring my deck because I was afraid that if I pulled something negative it would color my experience so you made a choice yeah Mm -hmm. but I did a I did a couple readings before I came here um and I do really love uh tarot it's a important practice for me and also shows up in some of the images. Mm-hmm. Like there's a chapter heading of the fool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that um, that worked really well because it's also you know the beginning of the journey um, in the cycle of cards. So um, yeah, I thought that was a fun. It, that was a fun. Everybody loves to play with tarot images, so it's good. Well, thank you for including us in your journal journey, and um, thank you all for coming.
You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.